Craft Beer Radio coverage of Savor, an American craft beer and food experience salon number three. Getting started with beer and food. Presented by Randy Mosier, author and instructor at the Siebel Institute and World Brewing Academy. Jim Cook, founder and brewer, Boston Beer Company. And Rick Martin, executive chef, Free State Brewing Company. Sponsored by Oak Beverages Incorporated. ready for today? Very special experience today. You are at a historic event, Savor an American Craft Beer and Food Experience, never been done before. We've never had the level of brewers we've had in this great hall serving their beers and food. It really has never been done in this broad a scale. So we compliment you and thank you for coming to this first event. We'd love to see it happen again. The reason that we're here in D.C. for this event is because it's American Craft Beer Week, and we're better to come than the seat of power in the country. And, uh, you know, the beer culture in D.C., how many people from D.C.? Excellent. How many people flew in for this event is a good question. Look at that. That's how special Savor is. That's amazing. Um, how many um, people understand what a craft brewer is when we say a craft brewer? Great. What a craft brewer is, they're smaller producing, meaning they produce less than 2 million barrels of beer a year or less. They're independently owned, which is a big deal. Our craft brewers, the majority of them, 975 of the 1,449 breweries in the United States in operation are brew pubs. They do not have huge advertising dollars. They um, maybe have been in business 10 years, 15 years. Some craft brewers are getting up there to 20 years. Um, But what they do have is something very special. They have you. They have beer lovers. And so when you support your local brewery, you're doing something very, um, very, very supportive of the beer culture and all the contributions of the craft brewers. 33,000 jobs from craft brewers alone. Craft brewers donated $20 million last year in charitable contributions. So it's not just about intaking good, full-flavored beers. It's about the culture behind these beers, the love and the passion, and taking beer styles, turning them on their ears, and uh, showing the world what beer is really all about. Because right now, Americans making some of the best beer in the world, and that is that is no longer disputed. Um, a little bit of a housekeeping note. I want to let you all know that you're in very good hands with your cupware today. You might have sat down and said, what's up with the plastic cup? Um, these cups are used at the Great American Beer Festival in our judging situations. Brewers Association puts on the Great American Beer Festival. We also put on the World Beer Cup. These are odorless and tasteless, so please have confidence in your cupware. Um, I want to remind you to turn your cell phones off. And uh, at this point, I want to also mention, everybody's reaching in their pockets, um, I also want to mention that Reyes Beverage Group has been an incredible supporting partner with the Brewers Association to put on savers. Anybody from Reyes in the room? We thank them very much for what they're doing. And what we have here today also is a sponsor for this particular salon, Oak Beverages. And we have a friend here. Where is she at? Oak Beverages. Oh, there you are. I'm going to let her come on up and and give you a sentence or two about what they're about, and then I will take the microphone back and introduce Randy. So hold on real quick. Come on up. Good afternoon. Thank you, beer lovers, for coming. We are a beer lover from the state of New York, 
And actually, I am of an independent, family-owned beer distributor that's been in business since 1901. But this excitement behind these craft beers is wonderful. And today, we need you to go out after this event and be the missionaries and talk about this great uh, craft uh, beers in America. Have fun with it. Enjoy it. Talk about it proudly. But again, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. So we're going to go ahead and get started. I would like to, um, I had the pleasure to introduce Mr. Randy Mosier. Randy, how many breweries do you think in your career you've helped along, give advice, counsel, the like? Dozens. He's definitely, there, there's many people, um, you know, craft beer really started um, after in 1978, Jimmy Carter made it legal to homebrew. And so in the 80s, 90s, there's been a few key people that have helped establish things. And Randy Mosier is one of them. I mean, we tapped Randy for a reason to give this talk today. He's got a new book coming out that he's going to tell you about. And he's here to help us all understand beer and food a little bit more because they're definitely made for each other. So let me go ahead and introduce Randy Mosier. Thank you, Julia. That's uh, more than I deserve, for sure. I will have a new book coming out in about a year. It's called Tasting Beer, and one chapter is beer and food. So uh, uh, if you're into this, and I assume since you're, stand- you're sitting here that you are very much so, uh, look, look for that book from Story Publishing. And uh, so I'd like to first introduce the other two panelists here on our, on our panel. Uh, to my left is uh, Rick Martin. He's the executive chef of a very fine brew pub in Lawrence, Kansas. That's uh, just outside of Kansas City, into, into Kansas a little bit. Uh, Rick has a progressive uh, menu, and he'll tell you a little more about what he does there uh, later on. So uh, give us a warm welcome for Rick Martin, the man of a thousand brewmaster dinners. And our other panelist uh, really needs not too much in the way of introduction. You know him, you love him, you've seen him on TV. He's the man who made it possible to get a decent beer in an airport bar and so much more. Jim Cook from Boston Brewing. So... We're here to introduce you to beer and food. And I'm assuming, again, because you're all sitting here, that you are already introduced to beer and food in some way or another, and you're looking to learn a little bit more. It's our intention to kind of try and try to break down the beer and food experience into some of its component parts and give you an idea of what to look for and how to go about uh, 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 understanding the process and finding pairs and putting on... Uh, putting together dinners and things like that. And we'll use the considerable expertise of, of uh, these two gentlemen and uh, myself and try and, uh, try and give it to you. So we're going to talk first. We're going to have some, uh, some general introductory remarks, and then we're going to talk about three important aspects of beer and food pairing. And we're going to trade those off, and I'm going to talk... Um, Jim's, uh, Rick's going to talk about trying to find common elements in beer and food and how those work together. Jim's going to talk about uh, trying to match the intensity of the beers with the intensities of the food. And I'm going to talk about some of the specific elements in beer and food that contrast with each other and how to deal with it. And when you put all those three t- things together, you've got a lot of power in terms of, uh, of putting beer and food together. So, And then we're going to, uh, at about 10 after, they're going to start bringing food around. And we'd like, if you can, 
understand it to hold off and not eat and drink until Rick has an opportunity to introduce a particular dish, tell you what you're looking for, tell you how the pairing works, and then we'll, we'll get on with it. So Rick's going to introduce two dishes and talk about appetizers and main dishes and how to go about that aspect of pairing. Jim's going to talk about beer and dessert, which is just one of those amazing, amazing things. Uh, you know, people first hear about beer and dessert and they think, oh, I don't know, beer and dessert, hmm. But it's actually one of beer's huge strengths. And then I'm going to wrap it up with a couple of handmade cheeses and some uh, fairly intense beers and talk about why beer and cheese totally kicks wine's butt when it comes to, to pairing. So, um, so that'll be really good. And um, so why beer? Why is beer such a good pairing, partner? Well, first of all, if you look at the range of, in, a range of possible flavors in beer, uh, it's just breathtaking. You have from 2% alcohol to 25% alcohol, as in uh, Jim's uh, uh, Utopias. You have beers that are straw blonde in color to deep inky stout color and all of the flavors that that represents. You have uh, a huge range from really sweet and thick and liqueur-like all the way down to extremely dry and quenching. You have carbonation, which is a huge benefit to beer and food. We'll talk a little bit about that. And some beers, you even have acidity, which, again, can work very nicely with, uh, with food and, and pair off and balance against some of the food components in food. And finally, uh, you have this amazing range of very complex, subtle aromas that arrive in beer in the form of yeast. Which, which adds maybe spiciness, maybe fruitiness. Uh, if you've ever tasted a German Hefeweizen, you know there's clove and, and uh, uh, fruit, sort of uh, very uh, banana, bubblegum, that sort of thing. So, so you have this huge range. And then uh, you have uh, the fact that beer is actually food. It's made from grain, like bread. It's cooked in the form of toasting grain. So you have this amazing you know, similarities in the way beer flavor develops in beer and food flavor develops in food. And that gives you an awful lot of common things to work at. If you look at the vocabulary of malt, just for an example, uh, bready, nutty, toasty, caramel, roasty, coffee, chocolate, what's that all sound like? Food, right? So, so you've, got, you've got all that. So... Again, try and hold off on eating. I know it will be difficult, but um, try, if you can, try if you can do it. Uh, so we're going to talk about th- those three things that I already mentioned. Uh, always important to consider, um, to consider all three of them, but you may not necessarily find that every one of those things is operative in every given pair, but quite often it is. Um, and finally, I want to urge you all uh, to not take this all too seriously, There's no such thing as the perfect pairing. We don't want to really make it overly complex for you, so do have fun with it. And in the words of an English guy named William King, who wrote a couple of centuries ago, a cauldron of fat beef and stoop of ale on the huzzing mob shall more prevail than if you give them with the nicest art ragouts of peacock's brains and filbert tarts. So... Uh, with that, I'm going to uh, bring uh, Rick up, and he's going to talk about uh, finding common elements and harmonies and uh, resonance and all that sort of thing. So, Rick? Also, I forgot to ask everybody to take their cups and stack them in front of you in a row to help our beer service go along. If you don't mind doing that right now, that'd be appreciated. Uh, thank you very much, Randy. I really appreciate being here. Uh, as Randy said, I 
I am a chef. I work in a kitchen every day, so my speaking skills aren't quite up to his level, so you guys will have to bear with me. I'm used to yelling at cooks all day. So, uh, but I would like to talk a little bit first about uh, harmony, basically, uh, to start with. Uh, I am a chef. I'm, I'm lucky in that respect. I work in a brew pub. I get to work with beer and food as much as I want all day long. I get to play with it, research it. Uh, I do have some tips for the you know, household consumer on how to practice that as well that I'll get into. Uh, but I like to approach it as a complete picture uh, with, with most of my pairings and especially when I do a beer dinner. Uh, you can find components. You can dissect the beer. You can play food around that. Uh, I, uh, I, I'd like to make an example of movies. You know, you, uh, movies are made and then a soundtrack is put to the movies to enhance that. Well, I like to reverse that in a sense of the movie Fantasia, where they took a soundtrack of all this beautiful music and made a movie to accentuate the music. And you can do that with beer and food as well. You can take a beer, you can taste it. The price point of beer really allows us to uh, buy a great bottle of beer and take it home and taste it and then decide what elements you like about it, what components that you find in that beer, and then start thinking about food and make the bridges and paint a picture whether it be over multiple courses or for a particular item. Uh, the first item that uh, I'll talk about in a minute, uh, that was definitely my goal with that, was to uh, paint a complete picture, find lots of different components to put in, and, and make uh, harmonies that all go together. Uh, the second item, I think, more of a uh, resonance issue, where I'm looking for uh, common elements to parallel and make... Uh, some connections based on what's already present in each of the items, uh, like taking a sausage, grilling it, getting some real smoky components, and pairing it with a beer where you may get some of those same uh, smoky elements uh, in uh, something such as a grilled sausage and a Baltic porter, like we'll, like we'll taste later. Um, do you want me to go ahead and talk about the first item? No, we don't have beer yet. And oh, okay. So, so just go... Just go through, and we'll do these three, and then uh, come back. Okay. And, uh, yeah, uh, you know, one thing that I do uh, like to point out that people can do at home with beer pairings is, uh, you know, uh, taste that beer. Uh, if you uh, are maybe tasting a Belgian golden ale, and you get uh, an essence of orange in the beer, even though there is no orange present, you can uh, take, say, a pork loin dish that you're making, sear it, uh, make a sauce, you know, squeeze an orange, grate some orange zest into that item, you create an instant bridge that uh, uh, gives your audience, your guests, a, uh, a complete picture of how those beers are marrying with the food and completes the picture. And uh, I think if you find those elements that you taste in the beer, the elements that you know, maybe nobody else does but you, but you're comfortable with it, then you can then pass that on to your guests as a pairing, and you sound real smart because you know, people taste it when you do. And uh, you know, when I do beer dinners, I like, I like to talk about the food, introduce it, and sometimes tell people what they're going to taste because sometimes they don't always know. And then when you do that, it becomes much more of a complete picture for them, and uh, the, all those harmonies work together. So I will uh, end there and uh, let Jim talk. Thanks, Rick. Clearly, Jim <laughs> wants his beer. Yeah. Yeah, I promised Julie I would do this, but I didn't promise I'd do it sober. 
Um, well, th thank uh, all of you for joining us. This is uh, certainly, as Julia said, a historic moment. And um, I started Sam Adams 24 years ago in 1984 in kind of uh, the dark age of American brewing when uh, it looked like we were going to be left with nothing but uh, Bud Miller and Coors. And it was sort of one of those Star Wars moments when there was a new hope and a small band of, of rebels uh, began, uh, you know, doing different things and taking aim at the Death Star. And here we are uh, 24 years later, um, and uh, it's a very, very different world. Um, beer has begun to take its rightful place at the table um, with good food um, and alongside wine. And luckily, uh, those of us who enjoy uh, beer, uh, when we go to a good meal, uh, we are not limited to the wine list anymore. And uh, I think what we'll be able to explore here is some of the basic uh, elements of, of pairing um, beer with food, and it's it's really you know quite simple to me, um, and uh, I would certainly encourage everyone to uh, you know to recognize and even trust the authority of your own senses. Um, you know, believe what your taste buds tell you. If you like something, then it's good, um, and if you don't like it. It's bad, and it's, it's, in some, you know, uh, I have a friend who's a movie critic. Rick was talking about how movies are are made, and uh, you know, uh, what uh, when you, I, mean, I have a pretty good palate for beer. Randy has a great palate for beer, but you all have a good palate for beer, and, and it reminds me of a movie critic. When my my friend uh, watches a movie, it's not like his eyesight is better. Um, he sees the same movie that we all see. You know, he just has some vocabulary and maybe can see some relationships, but it's not like he is equipped with any better sensory apparatus than the ordinary person. And the same thing is true, you know, with beer. Um, you're not uh, going to taste anything different than what I taste. It's not like, you know, any of us up here have some magical palate that we taste things that you don't taste. So, you know, trust the credibility uh, of your own palates. Um, I will give you some sort of, you know, thoughts to keep in mind in, in pairing uh, food with beer. Um, they are similar to any other kinds of pairings of wines or anything else. And, and um, the sort of the, the four elements that I might have you think about, um, the first one is just matching intensities. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. If you're going to have a big, flavorful dish, you want a big, flavorful beer. And um, that matching of intensities has a lot of consequences for food and beer today. Uh, and those consequences sort of derive from uh, human and ultimately culinary history. Uh, we you know, previously, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, when I first started Sam Adams, the idea of, of food and beer dinner, you know, a seven-course dinner with beer uh, was uh, a six-pack and a pizza. That was a seven-course beer dinner. Um, but uh, things have changed considerably. But back then, 
Beer was kind of the poor stepchild. If you had a good meal, you had it with wine. Um, this was 1984. America's culinary awakening had just happened. It was essentially driven by pioneering people like uh, you know, Julia Child, um, Craig Claiborne, James Beard, people like that, whose essential uh, contribution was bringing basically fine French cordon bleu cooking to the United States with its light flavors, delicate sauces, and so forth. And those are wine-friendly cuisines. They're pretty mild. Uh, they have a lot of fat. They need that acidity from the wine. Um, and that cuisine is built around wine. Um, well, guess what? Since then, Americans have discovered that there is more to good food and good cooking than French cuisine. And there is today uh, a whole new generation of chefs that have moved beyond the origins of you know, America's culinary awakening. And they are bringing in many, many other uh, cuisines and ingredients to their cooking. They are bringing in, uh, you know, Thai, Mexican, Indian, Chinese, Ethiopian, Guatemalan, Nicaraguan, you know, you name it. Um, they are bringing in what are uh, a much broader range of cuisines that are essentially tropical cuisines with, you know, big flavors, hot spices, um, really big, flavorful dishes. And those big, flavorful, spicy, uh, tropical cuisines are beer cuisines. Wine doesn't work with Chinese food. Wine doesn't work with Thai food or Mexican food or Indian food or Japanese food or Ethiopian food or Guatemalan food. It doesn't. Um, beer does. Those are beer cuisines. And it, so at this moment, um, the uh, culinary accomplishments have moved beyond wine, and uh, wine is struggling with a lot of the new cuisines. Um, this is the moment when we need to add something else to our range of choices of pairing uh, food with a beverage. This is the moment when beer is filling that void, and that's something that you'll see uh, today with all of those dishes. And, and the principles behind that, to me, um, are pretty simple. You know, you match intensities. A big, flavorful beer goes with a big, flavorful dish. You know, a lighter, sort of delicate, kind of, you know, more classic five-mother sauce, French cuisine kind of thing, that goes with a, a lighter a beer, a, a, a light pale ale. Um, you know, some of them are so delicate that even, like, a Bud Miller or Coors actually fits. Um, and when you step up to more flavorful dishes, you want uh, a more flavorful beer. There are, uh, with beer, there's no simple analogies, I don't think. You know, the, the analogy that you, you read about, which I think is, is just wrong, is that lagers are the white wines and ales are uh, the red wines. And um, that, again, is largely driven by the stereotypical conception uh, of beer that you see from the massive American brewers who make lagers, uh, but they're very, very light in body. 
Um, but when I think of the beers that we make, our lightest, uh, most refreshing beer is Samuel Adams Pale Ale. You know, our biggest, uh, hardiest beer that we commonly release is Samuel Adams Double Bock. The Pale Ale, obviously an ale. The Double Bock, a lager. But that's our biggest beer. So I can't give you any simplistic guidelines. And the ones that, you know, that I've read is just wrong. Um, so I want to get that out of your head. The other elements that uh, allow beer to pair with food after matching intensity, to me, I think of uh, the three C's, cut, complement, and contrast. Um, so uh, beer uh, can cut through the flavors, as we'll see with the cheese. Um, the effervescence of beer, um, uh, the, that sort of uh, carbonation and crispiness um, will cut the fattiness of the cheese. You know, the wine guys say, buy on the bread, sell on the cheese, because cheese will coat your palate um, and dumb it down with wine, so uh, bad wine will taste okay. Um, It doesn't work that way with beer. The beer, because of the carbonation, will physically scrub the fat off of your palate and cleanse it. So it'll cut through that fattiness and refresh your palate. Um, Compliment is pretty straightforward. We'll see it in, in one of the Sam Adams pairings where we have a, a chocolate fudge brownie with a black lager and those sort of chocolatey, cocoa, sweet, roasted notes from the black lager are very complementary to the chocolate. And then contrast um, is another pairing that We'll see. But beer has lots of stuff going on in it. It's a much more complex beverage than wine. And so you can have a lot, like, the, the essential flavor structure of beer is body and sweetness of the malt and spiciness and bitterness of the hops. So you can use uh, a big hoppy beer actually to contrast uh, something sweet. And we'll have an opportunity to do that where we pair Samuel Adams Boston Lager, and this was fairly challenging, um, with a sweet dessert um, because the dessert is a very complex dessert, lots of different flavors, um, and uh, that contrasts with some of the, the bitterness um, and the floral notes in the beer. So match intensities, cut, complement, and contrast and look beyond the wine list. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Since you all have two beers and two dishes on your plates, and in the interest of moving this along, uh, we're going to have Rick talk about what those dishes are and how they work, and then I'll get back and talk about the kind of contrast and cut things that Jim was talking about, give you a little more detail on that. So, Rick, take it away. All right. What we have here, because I know you guys want to get some beer in you and start eating, uh, I've been trying to push towards uh, beer and salads. I really like uh, that sort of combination of flavors and getting people used to that. Uh, this is a lettuce roll, uh, basically taking an idea of a salad and making it into a, a, a bite-sized thing that you can pick up. And to take those examples of harmony, uh, you know, there's a, a wedge of lettuce in there with some uh, Maytag blue cheese. Now, usually you would think blue cheese, you know, you want a barley wine, a porter, something a little bit bigger. But in this case, you know, an imperial pilsner, uh, really stands up to it with the, with the double strength. 
the raisin vinaigrette acts as the counter to that blue cheese to give you some sweet elements, something smooth to, uh, to help wrap that sharpness uh, up. And there is a sa- another salad in there of julienne carrots and some toasted fennel seed. So that gives me an essence of crunch and a spice that I can use to play around with those hop elements, which you always want to uh, consider because, you know, uh, y- y- that really brings out the hops, gives that uh, herbal uh, aromatics uh, that you can play around with. And, you know, lots of spices work depending upon the style of hops. Uh, so uh, the second item, go ahead and try that. Uh, you know, definitely dig in. The uh, second item, uh, you know, this is where I wanted to uh, accomplish two things. Number one, uh, you know, working on some parallels uh, that you can do to take a common item in each of the uh, the food and the beer, and also, you know, kind of push my mission of uh, a lot of what Jim said. This is very easy uh, beer and food. Uh, there, beer is very very forgiving. There's lots of different styles that work with lots of different. Uh, cuisines and ranges of food. Uh, you know, summertime's coming up. We're all going to be in the backyard cooking, and I thought it's very important to try to get people to uh, understand different styles of beer for the backyard barbecue, uh, aside from just, you know, your traditional uh, light lagers. Uh, and I think porter really works well with this because of the grilled sausage, the smoky aspects of the sausage. Uh, the carbonation in this porter, this is a Baltic-style porter, uh, has a very creamy carbonation that definitely cleanses the palate to some extent, but it doesn't completely wash it away. It still leaves a lot of those rich flavors to linger. Uh, And uh, the uh, porter stands up really well to the mustard. Uh, What I was trying to do here was try to give a bite-sized example of something like a... Uh, a nice backyard sausage or a street sausage with uh, the Swiss cheese, the pickled radish with dill and the uh, Dijon mustard uh, to uh, you know bring it all together. And I think porters are one of the more subtle malt characters of some of the darker beers, and they work great in the backyard. You know, to me, it is refreshing. Uh, you know, not quite as refreshing as some of the uh, lighter beers, but it certainly works. Uh, especially with barbecue sauce. It, it does that really well. And, uh, yeah, ju- so just to finish up, you know, remember that beer is very forgiving. Uh, you can't really go wrong. There are cer- certain things to stay away from, maybe. I haven't really found too many, but uh, have fun with it. You know, beer should be about an experience, having fun, and uh, there's lots of different ways to go about it. Don't be afraid to experiment. And How are you guys enjoying the uh, food items so far? Guess I should eat too. Mmm, beer and food. I should have mentioned at the beginning, you all have a copy on your table of the brochure that I put together for the Brewers Association. Uh, this covers some of what you know, some of what we're talking about, and gives you. There's a chart in the middle that has uh, some recommended pairings and where to start with beer and food, and. Uh, uh, we're going to reference one detail in this chart. I also uh, wanted to mention that um, Julia came up to me before the event started and uh, pointed out that no less than the uh, exalted uh, Wine Enthusiast magazine actually has 
part of our chart from that from that brochure right in the magazine. So looks like maybe the wine people are getting a little bored with wine. So so anyway, and and the person who was working on this uh, will be uh, presenting. What's his name, Julia? Lauren Lauren Bucco. Buzio. Buzio. Lauren Buzio will be speaking tonight if you're going to be around. So that ought to be a great presentation too. So. Um, so those uh, just a couple of little details. While they're finishing setting up the beer and dessert, I want to get back to this notion of contrast. Uh, on a Star Wars theme, uh, you may have all heard about matter and antimatter. So I find that there are there are certain certain elements in beer that really are uh, elements that balance one another. And you think about the concept of a of a beer itself. There are elements inside that beer that balance. Typically, it's the sweetness of malt balanced against the bitterness of hops. That's a typical balance. But there are other things that play a role. Say, uh, roastiness actually comes down on that bitter side of the equation. So you can have a roasty, sweet beer even without a lot of hops. It can still taste balanced. But so if you think about that concept of balance and just extend it out into the beer and food pairing. Uh, you can see that that these elements will balance each out. And if you if you look at the in the in the brochure on uh, um, page four, there's a little chart here that'll give you kind of a basic understanding of some of these elements that work in opposition to each other. And um, in beer, we're talking about uh, uh, hot bitterness, roasted malt, carbonation, and alcohol. These are all things that various beers have. These all balance out against the characteristics that you would find in food, which are sweetness, uh, fat, and uh, actually there's, not, there's one not on here because I've been doing a little more research, uh, is the notion of umami. How many people know about umami? You need to know umami. Uh, umami, they've recently discovered, the, the Japanese and the Asians have known about it for quite some time. The word actually means deliciousness in Japanese. And the concept is, is basically, they've, they've, scientists have recently discovered the actual genetic pathway for the receptors, and it's determined that this is actually the fifth taste on your tongue. You have sweet, sour, salty, bitter, but you also have a taste for umami. And it's a glutamate receptor. So if you're familiar with monosodium glutamate, if you ever want to taste what umami in the absolute tastes like, take one crystal of, of MSG and put it on your tongue and let it sit there for it and dissolve, and you'll get this sensation. It's basically, it's your body's way of telling you this food is high in protein. Right? So it's a marker for protein. And so foods that have been cooked a long time, uh, aged beef or, or long-cooked uh, meats will have a lot of umami. There's plenty of it in aged cheese. Parmesan cheese, turns out, is actually 10% glutamate. So there's a very large amount of it. Ripe tomatoes have umami. And, of course, it's a bacon, uh, a lot of cured meat because it's been aged. Uh, so so it's, uh, there's a lot of chefs who are doing a lot of work with umami. It turns out to be a fairly important uh, play a role in cuisine. Not so much in beer, although you do find it in aged beers. But, but so considering umami is, you know, is another, it's as, is as intense a flavor as sweetness or fat. So you're basically looking to, um, to balance things, these things out. The, the, one, um, the one kind of negative balance is that uh, even though we love bitter beer and we love spicy food, when you put the two together, the, a lot of hops in a beer will actually make a hot food taste hotter. So if you're in a Mexican restaurant, that's why those, those uh, dark 
beers like Negro Modelo or uh, an Oktoberfest uh, like the Sam Adams Oktoberfest or whatever it is, a dark, sweet, malty beer really cuts the heat. Now, if you're a goofy, chilly, hothead, hophead like most of my friends, you're going to want to drink the bitterest beer you could get to really pump up the burn. So, you know, a lot of this really does come down to personal personal uh, preference. So, um, when we... Uh, so, so when, when, we're, when we get around to uh, tasting the, uh, the IPA or the, the uh, Dogfish 90-Minute with that blue cheese, you'll find this matter-antimatter annihilation principle at work. And I expect it to some degree in the dessert pairings as well. And uh, one, of the, one of my favorite dessert pairings, and I've used it a million times and it works every time, and it sounds so wrong, is a double IPA with carrot cake. And carrot cake's basically too sweet. You know, it's a hideously sweet dessert. And even if you like sweet stuff, carrot cake's pretty, pretty, that's a lot of sugar. But if you take a bitter, a really bitter beer, maybe a beer that's even too bitter, and you put it up against a carrot cake, those things annihilate one another. I mean, that really is matter antimatter. It works with cheesecake. Uh, it works with some other pretty sweet desserts. So give it a try sometime. If you ever have an opportunity to try carrot cake and IPA, I urge you all to amaze and astound your friends with it because it's like can't fail with that one. Um, so let's see. I, I think that's about it. So uh, we've got dessert on the table. Uh, I'm going to bring Jim up and let him tell you about what, uh, what you're tasting and what you're looking for here. So. Um, this was actually a lot of fun uh, trying to uh, the challenge of pairing beer with dessert uh, because you don't normally think of the two together. Um, we do have some dessert beers. Uh, we have this uh, beer that is at the lunatic fringe of brewing. Uh, Randy alluded to it. Uh, it's called uh, Samuel Adams Utopias. It weighs in at a mere 51 proof. Um, so uh, it uh, is uh, something that people have never really imagined, and, and that's a nice dessert beer, but I wanted to try um, some of our regular lineup of beers. The first uh, pairing is uh, with this brownie. And, um, well, you know, pretty good brownie, nothing uh, out of the ordinary. You definitely can try this at home. Um, mostly sweet, um, a bit of chocolate and the crunchiness from the nut. Um, we paired that with Sam Adams Black Lager, which, uh, you know, it's, it's fairly attenuated, so it's not big and thick. Uh, you get the carbonation and it kind of cuts through the richness of the brownie, uh, so it gets some of that cutting, but it also complements the chocolate of the brownie. And black lager uh, is a different kind of uh, dark beer. Most dark beers, particularly really you know, black hole type beers like this, uh, are made with um, deep roasted malt. And you basically take uh, the grain barley um, and you roast it essentially in something that looks like a coffee roaster. And as a result, when you think about most you know, really dark beers, they have a little bit of astringency, almost a burnt paper taste to them. Think about a, a Guinness or a other black beer. Um, and that burnt paper taste comes from 
you're basically burning the husk of the grain, which is paper. I mean, it's cellulose. So that burnt cellulose taste um, is somewhat off-putting to me in really, really dark beers. And to make this beer, we found a small family maltster um, in in Bamberg, Germany, that uh, found a way to get the husks off of the barley um, before they roasted it. So we took that burnt paper taste out, and you get a dark, uh, creamy, chocolatey kind of taste in the beer without that astringency. So it's almost a complete complement to uh, the soft, sweet chocolate flavors in the brownie. And do we have another beer for them? The second thing? We should. They're going to pour it in. Does second. everybody have a They're second gonna beer? They're going to pour it in any second. Okay. Would you okay. say, I have a question for you while we're waiting for the next beer from yes. Jim's Hint Hint. Um, so would you say this is served a little cold? Some of the flavors are perhaps masked. What you're drinking right now, temperature is important. Yeah, temperature is very important in your ability to taste things. And, and most, you know, we're mostly familiar with ice cold beer. And um, the, you know, the, I mean, we live in an, craft brewers are kind of in this alternative universe. Um, most beer in the United States is consumed for refreshment. And that's become its function over the last 50 years. People drink beer for refreshment. And it's nothing the matter with that. Beer is an incredibly refreshing beverage. You know, a, an ice-cold, light beer on a hot day is one of beer's uh, great pleasures. Um, we don't make that kind of beer. So we don't make beer. For, well, but... Um, in all honesty, I, I'm the sixth oldest son in a row in my family to be a brewmaster. My family has been brewmasters for 150 years. We made that kind of beer. Um, and, you know, it has its function and its place um, as sort of alcoholic soda pop. And that's a good thing. It's an interesting set of flavors, and it satisfies that need. Um, but craft brewers live in this alternative universe where we don't make truly refreshing beers. Um, and a really refreshing beer, 35 degrees is a good temperature for it. Um, Sam Adams Lager, uh, the ideal temperature, and I know this from uh, doing taste panels with uh, professional uh, sensory analysts, it flavor is best at 46 degrees. You know, having ice-cold Sam Adams um, is alcohol abuse. Um, you know, the, at that, that flavor, I mean, at that temperature, it's just too cold. It numbs the taste buds, um, and you don't get all of the complexity that, as a brewer, um, I put in the beer. So, you know, for, for me, uh, Boston Lager, 46 degrees is the best temperature. And this is, you know, the black lager warmed up. And when it hit about 45, 50, uh, you actually got more flavor. You know, you don't drink Cabernet uh, at 33 degrees from a frosted mug. Um, You shouldn't do that with beer either. Do you want to talk about the specifics of what's going on in this pairing? Yeah, I got to get a beer. Oh, sorry, yeah. Okay, this was 
Uh, for me, one of the most fun ones because uh, I wanted to do the dessert pairing. Boston Lager is typically a beer that pairs best with kind of the center of the plate with big, rich, flavorful meat. Uh, Sam Adams Boston Lager is probably our most food-friendly beer. This is kind of our go-to beer. If you open my refrigerator, this is what you would find. Um, I've been drinking this beer pretty much every day of my life for 24 years. Uh, and I used to be bald. Um, <laughs> there's hope. <laughs> And I still haven't gotten tired of it. Um, it is uh, a beer that, to me, meets the sort of the the the, uh, the fundamental criterions of a great beer. It is very, very flavorful, yet balanced and complex. And in the beer itself, you'll taste the structure of beer, which is a balance between body and sweetness from the malt, spiciness and bitterness from the hops. And if you're actually attentive, you will get those four experiences as they march across your palate in exactly that sequence. Body, sweetness, spiciness, and bitterness. And we, um, as a result, we paired it with a dessert that reflects um, those characteristics a big, flavorful, yet balanced and complex. Um, this is a galette, and if you don't know what a galette is, neither do I. Um, <laughs> It's some little French thing. Um, but um, Does Rick know you have an executive chef in the room? <laughs> Do you know what a galette is, Rick? Uh, it's a little tartlet. A little, a little tartlet? Tartlet, yeah. It's, it's like one of these. That sounds very spicy. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, what we have in here, a lot of different flavor elements. It's a pretty complex taste. You've got... You know, the, the crust from it, which is mostly sweet, uh, but has some cereal notes. You've got raisins, you've got spice, and you've got a blood orange in here. So there's a lot going on in the flavor of this. And it matches intensity with the Boston Lager, which similarly has sweet, spicy, and a, a very complex flavor with a lot going on. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Jim. Um, I think maybe uh, uh, we're going to be waiting on the cheese and getting the cheese and the beer cheeses out and the cheese beers out. Um, this might be a good time. Does, does anybody have a, any questions that they want, want to talk about beer and food right now before yeah, we, we oh, look? Microphone. Plenty of questions. That's good. We have a microphone. Okay. Here we go. Hey, Randy. Uh, I just want to know, do you recommend... Tasting the beer and then the food, or taste the food then the beer. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's whatever you you know whatever you got in front of you first. I don't think there's any particular order. Again, you know you can overthink this stuff. So um, either way, it works great. So what else? Any questions? Yeah. So so my question is a bit more craft brewing oriented. And I'm kind of new, so um, as I understand it, the, the sort of legacy of prohibition is the homogenization of all American beers. And I was wondering, in this new age where craft beer is kind of sort of coming back to the fore, how does it compare to the craft brewing of like 1900 before everything became Miller and Bud? 
Well, the question, the question is basically, we have craft beer now and it's wonderful. Was, was beer wonderful before Prohibition? Absolutely, and, I, and you actually just tasted proof of that. The Samuel Adams Boston Lager that you just tasted is not my recipe. It came from my great-great-grandfather's brewery who uh, brewed in uh, actually St. Louis in what was, what was the first golden age of American beer when you know, American beers were winning awards all over the world, when American beers were brewed by uh, immigrants from England and Germany who brought their brewing skills and their ingredients um, Sam Adams Boston Lager is the beer that my great-great-grandfather made from 18, roughly 1860 to 1890. That's what American beer used to taste like. So there you go. Uh, anybody else? Raise your hand if you have a question. Yep. I probably, I probably don't need the microphone. Um, Jim, I was just curious... The dehusk malt that you were referring to, if that's available to the home brewer, and if so, under what name? Um, I don't know. It it comes from Vireman. Carafa. 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 They make they make three different colors and husked and dehusked. So you have to specify dehusked variety. But most of the larger homebrew suppliers carry it. It's lovely stuff. All right. So let me talk about cheese. Is there? We'll, we can handle some more questions. Um, Shortly, but they're getting ready to bring the cheese out. So I just wanted to talk to talk about cheese. Um, let's start with beer, cheese. What are they ultimately? Are what are they made of ultimately? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Grass. You know, they, they're they're both. They start from the same place, so that gives those two things a lot of similarities uh, to to each other. And in addition. Cheese and beer both undergo various types of fermentation processes. And fermentation processes, no matter what's going on in it, they have some common chemistry. And that tends to generate certain common uh, flavor elements that you find in beer and cheese. So, for example, uh, flavor descriptors that apply both to beer and to cheese, things like buttery, earthy, fruity, meaty, uh, caramel, nutty, herbal, and aged flavors. So those, those, that's a pretty good-sized overlap of flavor vocabulary. So if you're trying to find, again, you're trying to find those resonant elements, you have a lot to work with on that. Um, how many people are hip to artisan cheese? That's pretty good. You know, there's a lot of parallels between the artisan cheese industry and the craft beer movement. And uh, while we've really, craft beer brewing has really exploded... Uh, craft cheese, the, the high quality artisan cheese is still it's, it's starting to be fairly well developed but it's not, uh, it's not in your local store. I mean you really have to go and seek it out. So I would highly recommend you getting a copy. There's a new book called The Artisan of American Cheese uh, and if you're really into cheese get a hold of it. It's like a, a, just a giant uh, field guide tour book to all the great cheese makers in the U.S. So it's very much well worth seeking out. Um, and uh, the, the other thing about cheese that makes beer so good with it, as Jim says, cheese kind of ruins wine. The wine writer once said that nothing will kill a, a, a great Montrachet like, a, like an overaged brie. 
You know, that that, that, that mouth-coating properties really, really ruins cheese. And, you know, they'll say, well, you know, maybe a little Gewurztraminer or Riesling. And, you know, when the wine people say Gewurztraminer or Riesling, that's a sign that they got nothing. <laughs> so, you know... That's, that's basically punting. So cheese is very rich. You know, even a fairly simple cheese has a lot of fat in it. And fat, although we don't think of fat as a really super intense flavor, it has a, you know, it gets on your palate and really affects the flavor of it. So as Jim pointed out, having that carbonation in beer, very, very important because it's really literally scrubbing bubbles. That's a physical action that's going to scrub off that layer of fat off of your tongue. And when your tongue is coated with fat, it can't taste anything else. So in order to keep that fat moving off of there, it really is important. So, I mean, and cheese will really uh, illustrate that matter-antimatter thing. So we have two selections um, on, in terms of cheese. Both are from small producers. Uh, the first one is uh, Great Hill. That's a Massachusetts dairy. They make a really extraordinary blue cheese. It's very uh, soft and creamy, a really nice uh, amount of herbal kind of character to it. And uh, uh, how are we doing on beer on that? Because that, that, and, and so you have that first one. And, and um, the beer with this is the Dogfish Head 90-Minute IPA. Now, Dogfish Head, you probably all know if you're beer aficionados, you can't hardly have missed Sam Calajone and Dogfish Head. Uh, it's called 90 Minutes because they have a unique, uh, somewhat gimmicky, but pretty interesting hopping technique where they, where they add a small amount of hops continuously during the brewing process. Now, hops, if you add hops, you're looking for aroma and bitterness. And in order to get bitterness, you have to boil it for a fairly long, you have to boil it for a half an hour or an hour to get much bitterness. And during that process, you're losing all of the aroma. So if you want bitterness and aroma, you have to put hops in the beginning and at the end, sometimes in the middle. Well, Sam thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we put hops in the whole time. So the first one of these that they made, they actually had one of those old vibrating football games, you know, and they tilted it at a slight angle above the brew kettle and put a bunch of hops on it, turned it on. And the hops, I guess it didn't work all that great, but it's such a cool story, I had to tell you. Now they have some sort of a screw conveyor thing that they put hops in continuously. Anyway, it's a lovely beer. It has beautiful citrusy, kind of orangey characteristics. He uses some of the newer um, multi-use hops that uh, I think he has a lot of Simcoe in this one. And they're very, just really kind of orangey and beautifully flavored hops. Plenty of bitterness. I mean, I don't know what the IBUs on this beer is. Probably, I guess, somewhere around 60, 70. That's a pretty good amount of bitterness. And uh, so what you're going to find when you, uh, when you taste the beer, the, the, and the other, so, so you have this great contrast between a lot of bitterness and this intensely rich cheese. And the other thing... You, uh, the other thing, the complementary part of this is that for some reason, the blue, the, that mold characteristic of the blue cheese, yeah, I got what I need, the, that, oh, look, grapes, too, how lovely. Um, so we could make our own wine right here. That's all you need right there. You know that, that hazy stuff on the outside of those grapes? That's yeast. That's brewer's yeast. That's where it originally came from. They used to add grapes to beer 10,000 years ago to make it ferment because the ye- grapes are covered with yeast. So just a little tidbit there. So let's, let's try this. The other thing is that, that the blue cheese characteristic has a really nice herbal sort of quality. And, and I find that it really connects really nicely with the herbaceous, that herby, hoppy character, that the blue, blue cheese and hoppiness really, for me, just seems to be a really great combination. So have a taste. See what you think.
we're doing good. Yeah. What do you think? Does that work? And I'll tell you, if you're going to do a, if you're going to do a little, if you're going to start with beer and food and impress your friends. Easiest thing to do is cheese. Get high quality cheese. Get high quality beer. Put them together. You almost cannot screw it up. So, and any really good IPA and good blue cheese, it, it almost never fails. And you know, a lot of people like a lot of people like barley wine with blue cheese. Yeah, that works great too. A lot of people like imperial porters and stouts with blue cheese. Yeah, that works pretty good too. So you're going to have an easy time of it. So the second, so the second beer, we haven't had the second pairing beer out, right? Um, They're going to serve it right now. I'll talk about the cheese a little bit. This is from a dairy, a, a fairly large uh, artisanal deer, dairy in Wisconsin called Roth Koss. And if you ever have an opportunity to purchase their products, I highly recommend it. They're, in fact, they're, they're very reasonably priced. They have a large operation. But it's a family that has roots in Holland originally. So they do a lot of Dutch-style cheeses. And the, and the, the cheese that we're tasting today is a, an aged, uh, we, we in America would say Gouda, but the Dutch would say Gouda. But uh, it's basically a, a, a cow milk cheese that's been aged a considerable amount of time. And this is the vintage Van Gogh, and I believe it's aged about two years. And uh, so during that two years of aging, it acquires a really rich um, uh, meat-like flavor. And one other thing we didn't really spend a lot of time on today, but I want to kind of leave you with, is, this, is a notion I call familiarity pairing. And there are a lot of combinations of food that you encounter during your daily life and eating that sometimes you can deconstruct that food experience and find that works in beer. So, so with cheese especially, there are a lot of occasions. Think of a grilled cheese sandwich, for example. And a grilled cheese sandwich has melty cheese in it, and it also has this beautiful kind of toasty crust of the brown. You can picture it, right, this kind of crust of brown stuff. Well, that's a flavor you find in beer. So if you can actually find a, a soft, runny cheese like a beautiful handmade camembert and pair that with a brown ale or a porter, then you've got this roastiness, and then you have a liquid grilled cheese sandwich in your mouth. It's really awesome. We, we did a pairing once. We had a, a fresh mozzarella called a burrata. It's a basically a shell of mozzarella, stuffed buffalo mozzarella stuffed with uh, cream and curds. And you cut into it, it just runs out this great creamy, milky flavor. And it's extremely just milk squared. It's so beautiful. And we paired it with a Hefeweizen. And the Hefeweizen was just amazingly fruity. And so the two together in your mouth made like peaches and cream ice cream. You know, and it was like startling. So sometimes you find those familiarity pairings, and, and they're, they're very memorable because you have these childhood, you know, you have these like oatmeal porter and chocolate cookies. You have like oatmeal cookies kind of, you know. So, so it's like you find these things, and they're great. I, we teach brewing classes at the Siebel Institute, and, and I teach the art of recipe formulation. And I always tell people, as a brewer, as an artist, it's your job to mess with people's heads. And that's your job as a taster, too, is to mess with people's heads, to give them experiences, to make things that they can remember, to tell stories in food and drink. And that's, you know, it's our, as uh, um, the lady from our sponsor pointed out, that's our mission as beer enthusiasts is to also be beer evangelists and to subvert, pervert, and corrupt all of our friends until they uh, love beer as much as we do. So um, on that, let's have a final taste of this uh, uh, beer, and then we may have a moment or two for questions, and, and then we're out of here. So... So while you're tasting that, any questions, comments? What were the first two beers? The first two beers uh, <clears throat> we brought here from Free State in Lawrence. Uh, there was a Fireside Imperial Pilsner 
And the second was our Blackjack Porter, which is a Baltic-style porter. So what do you think of that second pairing? Just that rich, aged, meat-like quality, salty, salty cheese, and roasty beer. Again, it's like roast beef. You know, that's, that's our familiar connection is this sort of rich, protein-rich, umami-flavored, plus this roastiness. It's just a flavor we all kind of know from eating. You put it in, deconstruct it, and do it in beer and cheese. It's fabulous. So I think that's about it. Uh, we'll have one question. Okay. I just want to ask Jim a question. I just wanted to thank you for donating your extra hops to everybody who needed them. And... Well, not donating, but you know what I mean. And I just, I just want to know what your thoughts are on the next two or three years as far as the hop shortage goes. I guarantee you in three years we're going to be drowning in cheap hops. Yeah. Hops, are, hops are a high, hops follow an equation that is the same equation as the overpopulation of lemmings. It's, it's an it's a, a extreme supply and demand with a, with a time lag. And, it, and it, the economists know the equation, and it follows a particular pattern. And you have a high-value crop. There's too much of. The value drops precipitously. People pull them out. Then, they, then there's no hops, and the price goes to 30 bucks a pound. Everybody's like, they're ripping up. They're planting hops in, in, in Wisconsin and upstate New York and in the backyards of the breweries in California. And people are like, just hop, hopped up on hops. And I tell you, in, in three, four years, we're going to be, hops will be back down to five bucks uh, a pound. So we, um, There's a different element to it. Um, what Randy says is true about, I mean, there's basically two types of hops. What Randy says is true about high alpha hops. Um, which just provide bitterness. Um, and those, you know, 96%, 98% of the beers made in the world are made with high alpha hops, and that's all they're buying is bitterness. That doesn't matter to the people out there. We're buying a different kind of hops. We're buying aromatic hops that, you know, give us all these nice spruce, piney, grapefruit, uh, you know, orange fruit, red fruit notes that we've had in these different beers. And that's a little trickier. The, the Brewers Association the, the, that has sponsored this event is, is trying to work with the smaller hop growers to get them to plant more acres of the kind of hops that we need. And a glut of alpha hops doesn't help us. Yeah. We need very special... Um, you know, the hops that we use in some of our beers, you know, the entire world supply is measured in hundreds of acres. Yeah. So we're going to wrap it up, too, because we're running a little bit long. Okay, well, I think we're going to move to a model that's more like wine on those aroma hops where the, contra- where the brewers will be contracting directly with, with especially good growers for real high-quality hops. So um, anyway, I want to thank you all for coming so much. Uh, we, it's our great pleasure to have you here. Thanks to Jim and Rick for helping out. Thanks to our sponsors. Thank you, Julia, for doing all the hard work behind the scenes. Thanks to the caterers. So get out there and use your newfound knowledge and find some great pairings. Thanks, and we hope you enjoyed this Craft Beer Radio coverage of Saver. To find more, visit www.craftbeerradio.com slash saver. Craft Beer Radio is released under the Creative Commons license. Visit www.craftbeerradio.com for more details.